Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Cyber attacks have become daily news. The recent SolarWinds hack, now officially attributed to the Russians, is notable for how many entities were accessed and most likely compromised. They included local, state, and federal government agencies, as well as major technology companies. In the last few years, cities like Baltimore have had their government network systems taken down by ransomware demands, as have hospital systems, where they've seen their networks taken offline by criminals that disrupt medical procedures and endanger patients' lives. The question is, who to turn for for help? It usually means bringing in the Secret Service, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security, along with local law enforcement. They attempt to mitigate the damage done and have a slim hope to catch the hackers who have created the chaos. These incidents highlight that cybersecurity continues to be a challenge at every level and that criminals continue to hack their way into essential infrastructure and vitally important information. We need to rethink how to manage cybersecurity and that it's more than a nuisance. As we head into the next administration, what can we do to secure our vital infrastructure assets? How do we best prevent and mitigate damage done through cyber attacks? Is it possible to create effective information sharing between government and industry? My guest today is Mika Ayang, Senior Vice President of the National Security Program and Chair of the Cyber Enforcement Initiative at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank Third Way. She's also a former professional staff member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Mika recently co-authored an article for Lawfare called A Roadmap for Tackling Cybercrime, where she outlines a key cyber priorities and the policy recommendations for the incoming Biden administration. Mika also just launched a new show called To Catch a Hacker, a narrative-based true crime podcast that tells stories of how famous cyber attacks were solved. Mika joins me today to discuss how the Biden administration should use her roadmap to help governments understand the threats they face and to encourage more planning and protocols to ensure that cybersecurity is a priority in the new administration. So Mika and I are taping on January 6th. You'll be hearing this later, but madness is ensuing in the Capitol, and there's a lot of uncertainty about our government. So I just wanted to note that as you realize that we're recording this podcast, because a lot of the challenges that Mika and I've seen throughout the years as it pertains to cybersecurity, I'm seeing and feeling very live and feeling for a lot of our friends and colleagues right now. So Mika, I really want to thank you for going ahead to tape today because I know that we're both worried about our friends and colleagues on Capitol Hill and both being here in Washington to make sure that everybody's safe. Thanks, Shane. And I hope you're staying safe too. It's a really disturbing day to see protesters storming the Capitol and disrupting what has been a smooth transfer of power throughout our nation's history. It's hard because we deal with lots of different kinds of threats and I've worked on Capitol Hill. I've worked with many of the members of Congress who have been evacuated from their offices. It feels like a very dark day, but this is one of many things that our nation struggles with. And, and I know we had scheduled this to talk about different things. Well, and you know, one of the things that I find when trying to explain to people how cyber incidents happen is a lot of times they really are a bit of a virtual way of the same way that you terrorize people in person. And there's a stage where, you know, I know when we both deal with military issues, you think that we're into a fifth dimension now and it's more apt to not be kinetic. And so seeing guns drawn and tear gas come out feels very 1960s. And I think we never thought in this day and age that we would ever see that come back. So a lot of sadness as we, we take this today. Yeah, absolutely. 
You recently co-authored a piece in Lawfare that outlines the cyber priorities that you're recommending for the incoming Biden administration. You did a fantastic job. Your recommendations are extensive and definitely worth our listeners taking the time to read. But can you just kind of give us some top priorities, what you think the Biden administration should kick off this new administration in cyber? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Biden administration is going to have a lot of different priorities. And given the global pandemic, rebuilding the economy, the chaos that's happening in our streets, cyber may not be a front page priority for people, but it is a thing that is affecting people's lives every day. And we've even seen during the pandemic ransomware attacks on hospitals and school systems that are disrupting people's lives at a time when their lives are already really disrupted. So we think that attacking the cyber security challenges is something that you have to do. You can't just wait till later because the threat is happening now. And one of the things that my organization really thinks about for cybersecurity is that there are a lot of people who spend a lot of time worrying about how do we defend the systems? How do we close the loopholes? How do we look for attackers on our networks? How do we make products more secure? How do we have better passwords and all that stuff? And that's all really important. But we realized that we were not doing enough to go on offense against the human beings who are on the other side of the attack. Because every single one of these malicious activities has a human being who is thinking it up and executing it. And that person largely feels like they are operating with impunity and that they are never going to get caught. And so we have spent the last few years trying to understand what we need to do to get to the human being, whether that's a criminal cyber actor, whether that's cyber espionage, The nation state stuff is obviously a little bit more complicated and goes into the realm of diplomacy and sort of national security policy. But we tried to understand what makes those cases so hard. And we tried to measure how law enforcement is doing. First of all, we discovered that only about three in a thousand reported cyber incidents see an arrest, but the reporting rate is incredibly low. Far more people experience cybercrime than ever report it to the FBI. So we know that the effective enforcement rate is very, very small. We're trying to figure out how to make it easier, less cumbersome for law enforcement to do that. And because we often have a law enforcement that is working at analog speed and attackers who are working at scale at digital speed, we have to bring law enforcement up to speed in terms of what they need to do to be able to identify and locate the attackers at scale. But also, how do we work with other law enforcement agencies in other countries? Because often these attackers are not located in the United States. We saw this with solar winds. We've seen this with other things. The attackers are in all kinds of places. Iran, North Korea, Russia, Romania, Indonesia, all over the world. And the criminal actors could be anywhere. So we have to be able to work cross-border with law enforcement to do that. And then the third thing that we really focus on is how do we measure what we are doing here? And then the overlaying piece is like, how do you coordinate those activities? What does the White House need to be doing to get all the different agencies who have a piece of this challenge together? So the three big things, it's like, how do you do better coordination? How do you improve domestic law enforcement? How do you work through the State Department on the international diplomacy side and training to bring up and improve your relationships with foreign law enforcement? So those are sort of the three big buckets. But we set out a very detailed roadmap for the next administration. Your point about educating law enforcement, when I first started in this space in the 2000s, I actually funded a group to just go train the cops. These are the local guys, right? That when you go on to the premise of the the crime, that you need to take all the equipment, not just the TV looking monitor thing, because they were actually having trouble with them not taking the actual computers. 
because that's literally the level of which they didn't understand. Now, this is when we were less mobile than we are now. So I think there's a better understanding of it. But it always, to me, heightened the idea that you can't underestimate the importance of education to our law enforcement to try to make sure that they're at least at some level of scale compared to the experts that are on the other side of the wall trying to cause all the trouble. And I know that we work a lot with bilateral agreements within countries, and we've had usually a good working relationship with Interpol, and it's getting a little shaky some days with the five eyes, but I think that for the most part, that's holding together. One of the questions that usually comes up is a lack of understanding of why we don't want some sort of cyber treaty. And I know that this used to be a big issue with Chris Painter during the Obama era is like, it seems like a good idea, but it's tricky. So I don't know if you have any comments on that, because I have a feeling that's about ready to come back. to. Yeah, look, I think people have made the argument that cyber norms are really important. And that's true. But norms and a treaty are only as good as their enforcement. Otherwise, they're just nice words on a piece of paper somewhere. There is one big cybercrime treaty, Budapest Convention, and the Russians and the Chinese have put forward another one for UN consideration. The problem is what one person's definition is of a cybercrime is another person's definition of free speech. And so we have seen the Russians and the Chinese try and use cybercrime as a way to get at dissidents in their area and not focus on the kinds of things that we see in cybercrime, ransomware attacks, disruptive attacks, attacks fraud, attacks for money, right? That are criminal in purpose. And so by looking at those edge cases, we're not really reaching that much agreement on the main issues on what should be cyber norms. But I think that we can start to build cyber norms through enforcement and through those bilateral agreements, making agreements about how we share information about crimes by prosecuting certain kinds of crimes and having other countries turn their people over to us for prosecution. They make very clear what kinds of behavior is and is not acceptable in the international arena. And that starts to build international practice in ways that actually gets followed up on rather than just saying, okay, we've ratified a treaty whole bunch of international agreements that go unratified or go unenforced. This one, because of the kinds of implications that it has, we hope that we can build a real sense of international law through enforcement. But that means bringing cases. Let's talk about information sharing, because that's another issue we have both at a national level and then at an international level is, I wrote a blog once that said this is, it's similar to the CDC, which is a little resonant right now going through a pandemic where The faster you can catch things and you can inform people, the faster you can hopefully cabin things off. And I know there's always been a challenge for us at the federal level because of our longstanding analog laws that separate, especially the military and the Department of Defense, but the other agencies away from commercial, this side of the business, that it's very difficult for them to share information with each other, which is why part of what we saw with SolarWinds is it's, they weren't immediately informing each other what they were seeing. Do you address that? Is there better ways for us to be working through information sharing going forward? So we note that that's a problem and we need a better, healthier dialogue between the private sector and the government, but we don't specifically say what kinds of information sharing needs to occur. We do talk about the MLAT treaties and the Cloud Act in it as a way of getting information from service providers to be able to deal with crimes. But When we talk about information sharing, we're talking about a broad range of things, some of which are specific to criminal prosecution, some of which are about protecting networks. And so Michael Daniel, the former White House cybersecurity coordinator, and I were talking about this, like we actually need to be more specific when we say information sharing to be able to break out the different kinds of information that we're talking about, which will help us better understand the legal frameworks in which that information can be shared 
and the legal risks that occur from that kind of sharing. I note that people have raised concerns about antitrust, about third-party liability. There are lots of things to be worried about, about you know potential regulatory enforcement. There are a lot of things to be worried about. But if we start breaking down exactly what we mean about information sharing, I think that that will help. Because there are certain things that it is helpful to share, right? Signatures of malicious software, something that we should share so that everyone can be on the lookout for that kind of malicious code. But there are other things that maybe become more proprietary and more difficult to share. And when we lump it all into one category of information sharing, I think the debate gets very difficult and it becomes very difficult to set up useful frameworks and lasting frameworks for that kind of relationship building. So I realize this is looking in the rearview mirror, but after just recently experiencing all that we're learning about solar winds, is there anything in your recommendations that you think if it had been put in place, we would be in a better spot now? Yes. So one of the things that we recommend is the reinstatement of the White House cyber coordinator or the national cyber director, either one. But what's very clear is that while you might not have been able to stop the solar winds hack from happening, centralized, coordinated response at the White House level would help us with response because you've got a whole bunch of different federal agencies all looking on their own networks. It's not clear that we have the big picture of what's happening here. My understanding is that there's some interagency fighting between about who does what, FBI, NSA, DHS, right? Like having the White House involved to make sure there are clear lanes in the road, who's talking to the private sector, who's doing what pieces of it. That kind of quarterbacking is essential. Otherwise, we're going to get redundant efforts. We're going to miss things. It makes it very hard. And it's also important to have, when we think about response, the State Department at the table because the solar winds hack which we've now attributed likely to Russian actors, will require a foreign policy response. But all of the agencies have to come together to talk about options and potential risks of anything that could happen that the president might do to respond to this attack. So I think it was 2012 when NIST really worked on their public-private partnership in best practices. And I thought that they did a very good job, but I also saw the people that were coordinating with them were people that had big government contracts. So, you know, it's like, sure, it made sense to go get an attaboy from the the government. And I thought, well, you know, it's a place to start. So I've been asking that question of a lot of people that are in this space. And it seems to, at least to the Silicon Valley crowd, there is an interest in revisiting some of that to say, maybe we need to, you know, eight years in cyber time is a lot of time. You know, there's certainly new avenues for people to be doing bad things to take some time and, and revisit that. Is NIST still a valued player in this space? Hard to know at this point because the last four years of the Trump administration have not really been what I would call normal functioning of government. And so it's sort of hard to know whether or not if you had sort of returned to what was the bipartisan consensus before of like people doing their jobs, whether or not NIST would be a valued player in that space. One of the things, though, that I think is really interesting about NIST that we should think about in the law enforcement context is that they've started setting standards for sort of professional expertise in the cyber industry. And it would be interesting to see if NIST, in conjunction with the Department of Justice and other law enforcement agencies, were to develop some training standards for law enforcement. So like what you were talking about before, what should a cop, a rookie cop know? What should a cop on the beat know in terms of responding to cyber incidents, say a local hospital gets hit? What should a forensic analyst know or be qualified to do? What should a supervising agent who works in this space be qualified to do? 
being able to set those kinds of standards would give people some measurements about where they are in terms of their current training, what they might need to bring people up to speed. It would help us develop a more common baseline for what law enforcement needs to do in this area. But I do think that there is a place for standards. But the thing that we have to acknowledge with cybercrime and malicious cyber activity is that these are people who, by definition, do not like to play by the rules. So (laughs) we can't expect to have standard setting be a solution to stopping malicious activity. How about training? I mean, that's always been a huge challenge is we just don't have enough people going in to help do the work of not just the three-letter agencies, but all across anything in the cyber space. And you know, I always wonder too that one of the reasons why a lot of these smart kids end up on the wrong side of the fence is because they are not interested or have the availability to go to a traditional, you know, four-year college to get their engineering degree. Are we getting better at that? I think it's an excellent question. Look, Silicon Valley has been very good at recognizing that formal education is not necessarily the qualifier that you need to have a successful career in cyber. I don't know that on the government side that we have done the same. And I do know that like requirement for four-year college degrees is something that actually can keep out people who could not afford to go to a four-year college, but might be smart enough to work their way up from on-the-job training in this arena to be really helpful and productive and have useful careers in society just by sort of being self-taught and, and learning the systems. I think we need to think more creatively about how we bring people in, not only into the private sector, but into government and specifically into government. One thing that was bipartisan in the last year was the, I hate the phrase cyberspace, but they used it, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. I've talked to Representative Gallagher from Wisconsin. He felt like They are off to a good start. And then the pandemic happened literally the week we all went into lockdown. They were putting out the report. Is there anything in that report that we should go take a hard look at? Well, they talk a lot about the creation of the National Cyber Director, which they did by legislation. And so that's very exciting. President-elect Biden has indicated that he will appoint someone to that position. That's really helpful. They do talk also about a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. We think that's really important. Eileen Decker, who is one of our co-chairs in our roadmap effort, and I have written about the importance of good cyber metrics. But one thing to keep in mind with the Solarium Commission, which is why we think of our work as a companion to it and not contradictory to it, is that by statute, that Solarium Commission's, their purview was mostly on the national security and homeland security side. It was not as much on the State Department and the law enforcement side. They were not chartered to look at those things. We look very deeply at the law enforcement and the State Department side of things. And so you should probably take a look at those two things together to see how they meshed, because this is really an all of government problem that requires all of government solutions. And as as much work as the Solarium Commission put in and as thoughtful as they were, they just weren't allowed to look at certain parts of the problem. Well, I highly recommend anyone listening to our podcast, take the time to go read your roadmap for tackling cybercrime, which is on your website. But you're also, let's talk about another project you have going on, which I have a feeling probably is a passion (laughs) project that I know you've done podcasts before, but you have a new one called To Catch a Hacker. And I listened to it this morning and it sounds fascinating. And I I want you to have one a day. I mean, (laughs) real crime. It's it's really fun. Look, when we got into this cybercrime project and like we were looking at the policy issues, they're very complicated and technical. And like, as we're talking to people about them, it's, it's a lot to wade through. And we were trying to figure out how to make the issues more accessible to people. 
how do you help not just the average Americans, but policymakers? You know, I, as a former congressional staffer, had to work with elected officials. They have a tough time understanding the technical details. So how do we put this in a frame that makes it easier for them to understand and sort of understand the challenge? And by talking about this as like the hunt for the hacker, the hunt for the cyber criminal, it puts it in a cops and robbers frame that people are really familiar with. So we are trying to talk about the discovery of a crime and real life incidents, a real life incident, the discovery of a crime, how you pull apart that incident, how you trace those breadcrumbs through the system to try and find real people. And then what are the challenges of locating, arresting, and prosecuting those people? So we made this podcast called To Catch a Hacker. And our first series season is about, people may remember this, there was a ransomware attack on Donald Trump's inauguration four years ago, where they took down via ransomware the security cameras around the Capitol. And as we see today, with all the chaos in the Capitol, having security cameras around the Capitol is an essential issue for national security, especially at a time when you're talking about transfer of government. So it was a very, very serious incident for the national security community that was involved. The fact that you probably don't remember it shows you how much chaos has happened since then, but also because we follow only successfully investigated and prosecuted crimes. Spoiler, it wasn't one that ended badly. Well, he actually brings up an interesting another point on cyber is that there I was a moment in time I was very hopeful that with the insurance industry getting involved that that would allow people to have the liability protection to then share information that would hopefully then lower a lot of the aspects as to what happens and then what we found with ransomware well and we found that the insurance situation is currently not great but with ransomware is they get caught you know in in Baltimore had that issue this mm-hmm. past summer I think where you know it's like they tell you not to pay them, but at the same time, you need access to that information. You need to get those systems back up and running. And so, especially for a city or a county, I mean, we've seen it in all forms of government, you know, like, what do you do? Yeah, look, these are really hard cases because what we're seeing is during the pandemic, the people who are getting hit in ways that are most disruptive are often the people who can least afford to pay or fix the problem. And so it's a huge deal. The first thing is that people need to be careful for their own protection, right? Be aware of phishing attempts and increase your own personal security. But defending is only going to be part of the solution. And so when it happens, it's important to report to law enforcement that it's happened because if they don't know about these cases, they can't start investigations that will lead to the arrest of the individuals. And the arrest of the individuals can make it so that they can't go on to do this to other people. It's not just about right catching the person who did this to you and trying to get back the ransom if you paid it, but it's also about stopping them from doing it to the next hospital or the next school district. But one of the things that we find frustrating, and this is another reason why you'd need a national cyber director, is that under the Trump administration, they've actually made it harder and made that problem that you talk about with the insurance companies worse because the Treasury Department issued guidance saying, look, some of these people who are doing the ransoms live in sanctioned countries like Russia, Iran, North Korea. And so if you pay the ransom and it turns out that it went to a sanctioned country, you could be guilty of a sanctions violation. And so it's like on top of the fact that your network has gone down, you're not operating, you're facing really expensive bills and probably value losses, all kinds of business interruption, you might be guilty of a sanctions violation. I think a lot of victims are uncomfortable with that. And you know they may want to pay, but then they don't want to tell anyone. At the same time, law enforcement has been very clear, and we've interviewed people about this. They want people to report and 
that law enforcement will not use that information against them. So I think that this is like, we're in a place where the government is not exactly clear about what it wants a ransomed victim to do in this circumstance. And we do need better clarity on that. Absolutely. Well, hopefully that'll be one of the major priorities. Well, I highly encourage everyone to take a look at your paper and watch what you're doing from here on out. I know it's going to be excellent (laughs) stuff. And I look forward to talking more to you about it as it's going on. And then to catch a hacker will keep us informed. And I think it's a great tool to teach people how this actually happens and that the laws matter and how we, we manage these things. It's tough to not be able to prosecute them as they'll just keep doing it. Yeah. And look, if anybody has fun stories out there of ransomware attacks or other cyber crimes that we should look at, please let me know. We're always looking for new material. Absolutely. Well, thank you, my friend. And I really appreciate you doing it on this day, which is going to be challenging for everyone. It is. But it was great to see you. It's a bright spot in an otherwise very disconcerting day. Thanks, Mika. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.